0: Hi again! Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast, with me, Michael Schenkman. Before we get started today, I'd like to offer you some fashion advice. Why not start the new year with a new stylish hoodie or t-shirt from the Scandinavian History Podcast, Webshop? If your wardrobe is fully stocked, you might also consider it a tote bag, a laptop case, or why not a fridge magnet. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with uplifting quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. Perhaps you'd enjoy a coffee mug with the message, wake up early if you want another man's land or life, a onesie for your baby with the text, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or a decorative pillow for the office couch saying, speak useful words or be silent. The options are almost endless. Links to these amazing items and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. Now, with that shameless self-promotion out of the way, let's dive back into the early Middle Ages in Scandinavia. Last time we looked at how unclear laws of succession, in combination with fertile kings, created a situation where there were far too many applicants for each open position as monarch that was conducive to stable succession and peaceful domestic situations. The first half of the 12th century, saw so both Denmark and Sweden rocked by civil wars where various pretenders with claims of shifting quality to the throne fought each other for the privilege of being king. This week, we'll look at the situation in Norway, The reason we didn't cover Norway last time wasn't because things were so much smoother and more tranquil in the third Scandinavian kingdom, quite the opposite. In the early middle ages, Norway was plagued by more than a hundred years of civil war with various pretenders fighting for the throne. There's so much ground to cover here that it not only didn't fit into the last episode, but we won't be able to finish it all today. The medieval Norwegian civil war is going to be a multiple episode affair. And the deeper we get into it, the uglier it's going to get, I'm afraid. But today, we'll start things off in relatively civilized fashion with the sons of Magnus Barefoot, who actually got on comparatively well together. Perhaps at least partially, because they kept roughly 5,000 kilometers apart. Episode 36 the crusader and the homebody. It's been a while since we last checked what the Norwegians were up to. When we last left them, back in episode 31, The Last Vikings, Harald Hardrada's descendants were busy establishing a medieval monarchy with an effective central power and a strong church. We ended with Magnus Barefoot who, just like his grandfather, Harald Hardrada, died while on campaign in the British Isles. Magnus had three sons. Eystein, Sigurd, and Olav. All of these sons were born to different women, and Magnus wasn't married to either one of them. But the idea of legitimate birth being a non-negotiable prerequisite for becoming king had not yet been established, so it was still enough to be the son of a king to qualify for the job of king in Norway in the early 12th century. That meant that either one of the three half-brothers could have claimed the title. This was potentially a recipe for disaster, or at least a civil war, But luckily enough for everyone involved, Magnus Barefoot's three sons actually seemed to get along and decided to reign as some kind of triumvirate of co-kings. Aestane was the eldest brother, and Sigurd was one year younger than him. They were 15 and 14 years old in the year 1103, when their father died and they became kings. If you think that's a little on the young side to be put in charge of a country, you're probably not wrong but they were still old and wise compared to the youngest brother, Olav, who was only four years old at the time. Needless to say, Olav wasn't particularly involved in the day-to-day running of the kingdom, and since he died very young, already in 1115, he never really got into it. In fact, he was so detached from the actual business of governing throughout his very short life that he doesn't really count as a proper king. He's not even given a regnal number, and even though he technically should have been Olav IV, that number was given to the next king by that name to ascend the Norwegian throne. But since that will only happen in another 300 years or so, we'll say no more about him now. In fact, we won't say anything more about King Olav Magnuson either, since he was so insignificant that the sources ignore him almost completely. But regarding his older brothers, Asten and Sigurd, the sources do have quite a few things to say. When Reading medieval descriptions of kings, they tend to be rather tedious and use a template when describing kings, claiming that they were all tall, strong and beautiful. It's like royalty was reflected in the way the king looked. That makes it remarkable that the description of Aesteyn and Sigurd are far more realistic. Astein is described as not particularly tall, and Sigurd was apparently downright ugly, if the sources are to be believed, and in this case I see no reason to doubt them, since they paint a rather positive picture of Eystein and Sigurd beyond their actual looks. As you may or may not remember from episode 31, The Last Vikings, Magnus brought his son Sigurd along for the ride when he set out on his Viking raid against the British Isles back in the year 1098. On the way, they stopped in the Orkney Islands where Magnus staged a little coup d'etat Imprisoning the ruling family, deposing the local Jarls, and keeping their sons as hostages to make sure that no one got any funny ideas about reverting back to their old system of government. Then, he had named eight-year-old Sigurd the new Jarl of Orkney. When Magnus Barefoot then moved on to oust the king of the Isle of Man and the Hebrides as well, he gave that title to Sigurd too. We don't know for sure if Sigurd was left in the British Isles to look after his new kingdom when his father Magnus went home the following year. But we do know that when Magnus Barefoot returned to the Orkney Islands on his way to Ireland in the year 1102, Sigurd was there to greet him, so maybe he'd been there the whole time. It could be that Magnus Barefoot had meant for his eldest son, Aystein to inherit Norway, and Sigurd to be the king over his own British island kingdom. But nothing came of Magnus Barefoot's dreams of Norwegian control over Britain, because, as you know, he was betrayed and killed by his Irish ally, the High King of Ireland, in the year 1103. After Magnus' death, Sigurd pulled up stakes and returned to Norway together with his father's retreating fleet. He left behind his child bride, the daughter of the High King of Ireland. I guess he wasn't too keen on being married to the daughter of the man who had just killed his father. It was when newly singled Sigurd and what was left of newly killed Magnus Barefoot's army returned home that the three half-brothers were made kings of Norway. The three half-brothers, or at least the two older ones, ruled together for a few years and things were going reasonably well. Then, after only four years as king, of Norway, I'm not counting the Isle of Man and Hebrides title here, which he lost when he went home anyway, Sigurd got into his head that he should set out on a crusade to the Holy Land. For context, the Holy Land had recently been conquered by an army of crusaders from Western Europe in the First Crusade. So the area was now under new Christian management and renamed the Kingdom of Jerusalem. It had been established back in 1099 and was currently run by King Baldwin, who before joining the First Crusade had only been a younger son of the Count of Boulogne, with rather limited career options back in Europe. So in 1107 King Sigurd set out on what has become known to history as the Norwegian Crusade. This was the first time an actual reigning monarch participated in a crusade, and I can only assume That was because most other monarchs didn't reign together with two other people who could look after things on the home front while you went about crusading all over the place. Some historians like to claim that this wasn't a proper crusade since the Holy Land was already won a decade or so earlier. Therefore, they say, Sigurd's little adventure can only be characterized as a pilgrimage. But I'm not convinced. It's true that Sigurd and his army didn't do any actual fighting in the Holy Land itself, but they did kill plenty of people on their way over there, and they did all the killing in the name of Christ, hoping to win hearts and minds for Christianity in the various Muslim communities they visited on their way across the Mediterranean Sea. In the fall of 1107, Sigurd and his fleet, consisting of approximately 5,000 soldiers, crammed into some 60 ships, set sail to foreign lands. The first stop on their journey was England, and for a change, a change the English no doubt found refreshing, this Norwegian fleet of warriors didn't do any pillaging, raping or general mayhem spreading at all. This time around, England was just a pit stop on the way to the Mediterranean. Sigurd reserved the pillaging and burning for non-Christian countries, and he started as soon as he reached the Muslim-held bits of the Iberian Peninsula. Wherever the Norwegians encountered non-Christians, they would kill anyone who wasn't willing to be baptized. Frequently, they would also throw in some pillaging as a bonus, no matter what the answer to the baptism or death question had been. The first Muslims to feel the holy wrath of the Norwegian crusaders were living in modern-day Portugal, where Sigurd arrived in the spring of 1108. By the time the fleet reached Lisbon, a city they characterized as half-Christian and half-heathen, they had already captured a castle and defeated a smaller force of eight galleys. It might be worth noting here that these opponents were actually referred to as Vikings in the Scandinavian sources, which indicates that at least to medieval Scandinavians, the word Viking just meant pirate. It wasn't limited to Scandinavian pirates, and it certainly didn't refer to Scandinavian people in general. This does not, of course, mean that Viking always had this meaning. It may have meant something else in the late 8th century, when Scandinavian Vikings raided Lindisfarne. After all, the meanings of words do change constantly, and 300 years is a long time, but I thought I should mention it all the same. When they reached Lisbon, they once again engaged the locals in a battle which the Norwegians won. Continuing south along the Portuguese coast, they sacked another city, and just before they passed into the Mediterranean Sea, they ran into another Muslim naval force, which they also defeated. Once they were in the Mediterranean, they sailed for the Balearic Islands. At the time, They were still held by Muslims, and in Christian Europe they were considered little more than a haven for pirates and slave traders, two categories that in no way were mutually exclusive. The arrival of the Norwegian crusader is the first recorded attack by Christians on the Balearic Islands since they fell into Muslim hands, but it wouldn't be the last. In fact, Just a few years later, in 1113 to be precise, a crusade was launched to conquer the archipelago, and the islands would eventually be incorporated into the re-emerging Spanish kingdom. The Norwegians engaged in some island hopping, sailing from island to island, Formentera, Ibiza and Menorca, pillaging and fighting what they rather insensitively called gaunemen and blumen, meaning Muslims and black Africans. According to the sources, Sigurd impressed his men during all this fighting because he would frequently get into the thick of things personally, bravely fighting alongside his soldiers. The pillaging was apparently not only good for his brand, but also lucrative, because Sigurd and his soldiers moved on from the Balearic Islands with a great amount of treasure. It had taken them a whole year to get this far, and the Norwegians were probably tired from all the killing, baptizing and scooping up treasure. In the spring of 1109, they arrived in Sicily, which was ruled by a Christian. On the one hand, that severely limited the possibilities for treasure hunting, but on the other, it gave them an opportunity to put their feet up for a bit. They were welcomed by the Sicilian ruler, Count Roger II, who was only a child of 12 or perhaps 13 years old at the time. He offered the crusaders his hospitality, and the Norwegians, who were weary from their year of travelling, accepted his invitation to stay and rest for a while. Count Roger, who was a Norman, and so technically of Scandinavian descent, was apparently a model host. Sigurd was so impressed that after a week of whining and dining, he declared that he elevated Roger from the status of a lowly count to the king of Sicily. It's unclear on what grounds Sigurd thought that he had the authority to make Roger a king, but his host wasn't going to object and just went along with it. You don't want to offend a generous guest, especially not if he's a little tipsy and commands 5,000 equally tipsy battle-hardened soldiers. But even though Sigurd didn't have the authority to make Roger a king, he would eventually reach that status anyway. Some 20 years later, the anti-pope Anacletus II declared Roger king of Sicily as a thank you for Roger's support of Anacletus in his struggle for the papal throne against another candidate but that's a topic for a completely different podcast. From Sicily, Sigurd and his fleet continued eastward around Italy, past Greece and Cyprus, and in the summer of 1110, they finally reached the Holy Land. They arrived at the port city of Acre, or Akersborg as the Norwegians called it. From there, they continued over land up to Jerusalem, where they were welcomed by King Baldwin. Baldwin was happy to receive the Norwegians, and he was eager to show Sigurd the sights. They made an excursion down to the river Jordan, where Sigurd could splash about in the water at the very same spot where Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist. After they had explored Jerusalem and the vicinity, King Baldwin asked if Sigurd would be willing to join him and the Dodge of Venice in a little war. They had decided that they needed to strike against the port city of Sidon in modern-day Lebanon. The city was held by the Fatimids, who had re-fortified the city in 1098. At a Muslim stronghold so close to the border of the Crusader Kingdom was obviously perceived as a threat. Sigurd responded to Baldwin's request by saying that he and his men had come to the Holy Land for the purpose of devoting themselves to the service of Christ. By that, he didn't mean that, they, that he was planning on spending the rest of his life in quiet contemplation or by helping the poor and the needy. No. He meant that he was very much up for a little war against Baldwin's non-Christian neighbors. They set out for the coast, and Baldwin besieged Sidon from the land side. Simultaneously, Sigurd took his fleet and blockaded the city from the sea. If they hadn't done so, it would have been very easy for the Fatimids to come to the aid of Sidon from the seaside, or even to ship in troops to break the siege altogether. Now the Norwegians and the Venetians managed to hold off the Fatimid fleet and Sidon fell to Baldwin after a month and a half, on December 5, 1110. Baldwin was so happy and grateful for the Norwegian aid in the capture of Sidon that he showered them with gifts. Most importantly, he ordered the Patriarch of Jerusalem to remove a splinter from the true cross, the one that Jesus himself supposedly had been crucified on, and to give that splinter to King Sigurd the crusader. Sigurd received this priceless gift on condition that he would continue to champion Christianity and that he would bring this precious relic to the tomb of St. Olav in Nidaros Cathedral, back home in Norway. Sigurd agreed, and after he and his men had packed all their treasure into their ships, they set out to sea again. It was high time to return home. But they decided that they were going to take the land route back to Norway, so they sailed to Miklagord, or Constantinople, as the locals insisted on calling it. Miklagård was a great city, a true metropolis, offering all the comforts and adventures that a medieval crusader could possibly think of. Despite the fact that the Norwegians had travelled a long way by now, they had never seen anything quite like it. In fact, Sigurd was a little worried that his Scandinavian crusader army would come across as provincial and slightly ridiculous to the sophisticated urban population of the Byzantine capital. So he devised a plan to make sure that they would be impressed by the Norwegian guests. First of all, he held his fleet back from approaching Constantinople for a whole fortnight, because the wind was blowing from the wrong direction. Only when the wind changed and filled the sails of all his 60 ships did he order them to sail all the way to the port, making sure that they made a properly impressive entrance. There he got on a horse that he would ride through the city to the imperial palace. He ordered that one of the shoes of his horse would be made of solid gold, but that it shouldn't be nailed down properly, so that it would fall off at some point during the procession. Furthermore, He ordered that no one in the Norwegian army would pick up the golden horseshoe. They weren't even to give it a second look, leaving the Byzantines with the impression that the Norwegians were so used to golden horseshoes that they weren't going to humiliate themselves by picking it up or even looking at it. And it seemed to have worked. The Byzantine Emperor was very impressed with his Norwegian guests and hosted them in the most splendid fashion, exactly like you'd expect to host someone who's rich enough to use horseshoes made of solid gold. But maybe it worked a little too well, because when it eventually was time to leave, Sigurd had to pay such an exorbitant sum for the horses he purchased for the journey home, that not much was left of all the treasure he'd been hoarding throughout his pillaging in the Mediterranean. Many of the men in his army chose to stay in Constantinople and went into service in the Varangian Guard. But those Norwegians who wanted to return home with their king eventually set off across the Balkans, Hungary, Germany and Denmark where King Niels gave him ships to sail the last bit of the way back home to Norway. The Norwegian crusader army, or whatever was left of it, finally returned home in the year 1111, four years after they had set out. So... What met the crusaders when they returned home? What had Sigurd's big brother Eystein been up to while they were away? Well, he had certainly not been idle, that's for sure. Eystein had kept himself busy, constructing churches, monasteries and various royal residences. But he had also invested money in improving infrastructure, not least establishing fishing ports along the Atlantic coast. Especially the city of Bergen got a big boost during Eystein's rule. The king wanted to encourage trade with Europe, and Bergen was the main trading port of the kingdom. The most important good exported via the port of Bergen was dried cod, a commodity in great demand in Catholic Europe, where there were a large number of fast days every year when the consumption of meat was forbidden. The demand for dried cod was almost insatiable, and to help boost the supply, Eystein also had this infrastructure, including churches, built along the coast where fishermen lived, all the way up to the Lofoten island in northern Norway. To pay for all of this, Astein also introduced a new fishing tax, so that everyone who went fishing in the Lofoten islands, and presumably enjoyed the churches and harbors the king had constructed, would have to hand over five fish to the king. In the city of Trondheim, King Eystein also built a church, but arguably almost as important, he founded the harbour there as well, so fishermen sailing south with their fish caught in northern waters could have a convenient place to have a break on the way to Bergen. Beyond its role as a link in the chain of the vital cod export, Trondheim had by now also become an important place of pilgrimage, thanks to St. Olav, the eternal king of Norway, who was buried in the city's cathedral. This status as a major pilgrim magnet was excellent, not only for the prestige that it bestowed on the city and on Norway as a whole, but also because it brought in a lot of money. Pilgrims would come not only from other parts of Norway, but from all over Scandinavia and beyond to pray at the tomb of St. Olaf. There was, however, one small problem. Trondheim's location. It was a long way to go, especially if you had to get there by foot, like pilgrims tended to do. You had to cross some pretty inhospitable terrain, including mountains. Quite a few pilgrims actually froze to death trying to cross the mountains on their way to or from Trondheim, and that, beyond being a personal tragedy for those who perished, obviously, was bad for business. To alleviate the situation and to secure continued pilgrimage, King Aystein had a way station built on the Dover mountain. There, pilgrims who hadn't packed for the weather could seek shelter from the elements and improve their chances of reaching Trondheim alive. So all in all, Eisting seems to have been a wise and resourceful king. He improved the conditions for international trade and he favoured the church, just like any good medieval monarch should. During this time, the tithe, that is the 10% tax to the church, was introduced in Norway. This obviously both strengthened the finances and independence of the institution, as well as endeared the king to the ecclesiastical establishment. King Eystein showed his wisdom also in his personal life, He was married to a Norwegian woman, and he was actually the first king of Norway to marry a local girl since Harald Fairhair. All other kings had married foreign princesses, using their marriages to strengthen their international connections and their domestic prestige. But the fact that Eystein had chosen a Norwegian girl didn't mean that he had thrown convention out the window and married for love. Far from it. His marriage was also a political one. You see, his wife came from a noble family in the east of Norway and her father had actually once started a rebellion against Aesteyn's father, Magnus Barefoot. By marrying this powerful and troublesome nobleman's daughter, Aesteyn had disarmed a potential conflict in the kingdom and preserved the domestic peace. Astein and his queen, Ingeborg, didn't have any sons, but they did have a daughter, who in turn would have a son. This boy, called Olav, will become an eager participant in the blood-soaked Norwegian Civil War in the mid-12th century. He will even manage to have himself proclaimed king for a brief moment in the 1160s. But let's not spoil Sigurd the Crusader's homecoming by getting ahead of ourselves. When Sigurd returned to Norway in the year 1111, he settled down in the east of the kingdom, in a place called Konghelle, which is actually located in present-day Sweden, but it was still Norway in the Middle Ages. There, he had a strong and impressive castle constructed. At least, it was impressive by Norwegian standards – remember we talked about the relative modesty of Norwegian castles back in episode 32, Three Kingdoms. To begin with, the brothers Astein and Sigurd got along well with each other, and presumably they were both busy, each on his end of the country, doing their own thing. But after a few years, the tension started to grow between them. We don't know the details about why, but it's not exactly unheard of that two co-rulers have a strained relationship. According to the sources, the reason for their eventual falling out was a girl, but I'm not convinced. Anyway, the only reason that the situation didn't deteriorate into civil war then and there was that Estein died suddenly in the year 1123, leaving Sigurd the crusader as the sole ruler in Norway after 20 years of co-rule. The same year, Sigurd set out on yet another crusade, but this time not quite as ambitious as the last one. He only crossed the border into Sweden and raided in the region of Småland, where the inhabitants supposedly had reverted to the old religion and were worshipping the old Norse gods again. Despite his sustained willingness to kill for Christ, Sigurd the crusader apparently lost some of his personal piety in his later years. He reportedly slept with the beautiful wife of an important nobleman, he ate meat on fast days, and he even kept the splinter from the true cross that King Baldwin had given him, and Sigurd had promised to deposit in the Cathedral of Norway. All rather scandalous behaviour, if you were to ask the average medieval Norwegian. But still, the most questionable decision Sigurd was to make in the twilight of his life had nothing to do with religion. In the year 1127, or thereabout, a man showed up at court, introducing himself as Harold Magnuson. He claimed to be Sigurd's hitherto unknown half-brother, who was the product of a fling between Magnus Barefoot and a local woman when Magnus and Sigurd had been campaigning in the British Isles a quarter of a century earlier. King Sigurd was sceptical, but he was willing to entertain the notion that this herald character was telling the truth, if he was willing to prove it by undergoing a trial by ordeal, and also promising not to try and become king of Norway as long as Sigurd or his son Magnus lived. Harald agreed to these terms, and after a few days of fasting, as was customary in preparation for such a trial, Harald was led barefoot across red-hot plowshares, while two bishops held his hands. Three days later, his feet were examined for burn marks, but they were found to be unscathed. Sigurd accepted this as God's message to him that Harald was indeed his brother. Sigurd's son, Magnus, and many of the Norwegian nobles were still not convinced, though. They suspected that Harald was planning something. Magnus hated his new uncle Harald from the very beginning, and he did nothing to try and hide it. Not too long after Harald's belonging to the royal family had been recognised, King Sigurd died and was buried in a church in Oslo. He left no legitimate sons, but despite being born out of wedlock, Magnus was certain he would be the next king of Norway. Next time, we'll see how that panned out. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history, such as the dentist office, in the supermarket, or at your next parent-teacher conference. Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners, and to motivate me to get out of bed in the morning. If you haven't already, I also recommend that you go to the show's Facebook page facebook.com slash scandinavianhistorypodcast like and follow the page if you want to shop or just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. As usual if you consider yourself one of the Twitterati, then you can follow me and send me messages on Twitter at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N I look forward to hearing from you.